Welcome to the FinTV podcast series, where we tap into the collective expertise of the world's leading supply chain, manufacturing, and digital innovators. My name is Maria Villablanca, the co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, and I'll be your host. Join us every week to hear the opinions, lessons, and general guidelines from the industry's leading minds. FinTV, insights for today's digital leaders. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of FinTV. I am joined by Stephen Day, who is the incoming Chief Procurement Officer for Kantar. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I see you're working from home. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe your journey up to this point? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I am a procurement and supply chain person, done that for the majority of my career. Uh, starting off in, in engineering in the Midlands in, in the United Kingdom, but very quickly graduated into technology and spent the majority of my career in telecoms, um, at Deutsche Telekom and Vodafone. I've worked in Romania um, and Luxembourg and Germany. Um, four years ago, took the switch and went into the media and publishing business in a company called Pearson, which uh, you may have read has gone through quite a substantial change. Left that last year, I've been doing a few um, bits and pieces, as they say, filling in the, the, the time. And um, as you announced, I'll be joining Kantar in April as the new Chief Procurement Officer. Um, it's a business that was recently acquired by Bain Capital. So very much looking forward to getting um, engaged in that business and helping them on their journey. Well, it sounds, sounds like it's going to be, a, well, an interesting time to join a, a new business, well, a business like that. Yeah. Uh, it's an inter- interesting time altogether. So uh, for those of you watching, obviously, we are all in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. By the time this podcast is released, I don't know where we will be in this journey. But I don't want this podcast to be dominated by that. But yet, yet it is today's reality. Uh, what's your view on, on this situation, you know, in terms of um, supply chain and procurement people? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's tempting to spend the next 30 minutes talking about coronavirus, but I think in truth, as Jurgen Klopp has said, there's a lot better experts out there that can talk to it. So I think we should rely on them. So I'm not going to offer an opinion too much about that. What I, what I will say, though, is that certainly I detected going back two years ago, an increasing sense among um, procurement supply chain people that there was a growing sense of vulnerability in the supply chains full stop. Um, and, you know, I think what people were sensing is that when there is a problem, either a trade war issue or something like Corona, suddenly you begin to feel very vulnerable in terms of how stretched your supply chains are. The second thing is, I think we do live in a world where our supply chains are very intertwined and very convoluted, which means I think sometimes an event in one part of the world take some time to feed in before we're quite um, aware of what the implications have been. So I think that's been going on. I think the third fact of the matter is that that relative cost parity that we've benefited from in terms of offshoring over the past 30 years is, is largely coming to a halt. I mean, certainly some of the labor rates in China, for example, for some of the professional services are very comparable to what we'd expect to pay um, in Western Europe. And therefore I think there is a, going to be a, 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 a coming back of a lot of things over previous generations of outsourced. I think that, and, and I think there's good reasons to think that that will happen because again, you know, I think people are much more mindful now of the environmental issues of how much it's costing to move products around the world and whether that's as efficient as it is. 
And then finally, um, I think all of that, I think what is very interesting is if, imagine all these corporate buyers are beginning to sense that um, fragility and thinking, let's come back uh, onshore. There's not exactly like there's a supply base onshore that can necessarily support all of this demand that wants to resource more locally. So I think suppliers for the first time in a generation are going to start to have some really interesting decisions within their business about which customers they want to support and which ones they don't. And I think that's going to change the whole language for a lot of procurement people that historically have been very successful going after uh, cost reductions as the primary focus. I think that is going to have to completely change um, as people try to secure supply in the future. So, yeah, some interesting times ahead of us, I think. You know, you bring up a really interesting point. The the whole change that professionals are going to have to make in dealing with the supply chain, everything from language, you know, to the types of people they work with. What do you think is going through the minds of supply chain professionals and procurement professionals, manufacturing professionals today, now they're in the eye of the storm? Well, I think, I think many people have been focused historically on efficiency, lean, taking cost out, trying to get the lowest price. And of course, you can't accomplish all of those things and still have latency and redundancy in the supply chain simultaneously because that has a cost that's associated with it that most organisations simply don't want to bear. And I, I think, therefore, be careful what you ask for. If you ask for a supply chain that's very lean, that is going for the lowest single cost, et cetera, et cetera. When events such as these do happen, you suddenly become very, very vulnerable. So I think the language and the conversation within many businesses is going to be, how do we reorientate ourselves from something that begins to start having a bit more resilience? It may have some more cost, but it just makes us have something that's going to be more dependent and, and will be able to absorb some of these speed bumps that we may face in the future. Now, the, the longer term implications of that, of course, are, you know, some of the consumer pricing that we've collectively benefited from 30, 40 years, maybe that era of cheap stuff is going to go away. Um, and we're going to have to accept that things are going to have to start to become a bit more expensive. That may not be such a bad thing um, in the context of uh, more environmental awareness so that's going to be an interesting well i was i was just going to say that i mean we're currently seeing the environmental benefits to some degree of uh the lockdowns and yeah. and so forth do you think that leaders today will have to take into consideration a trend that was coming anyway with uh sustainability the circular economy do you think now this is an opportunity to look at more locally based supply chains you know look at different ways of doing things yeah, I mean, look, let's take airlines for the moment. I mean, they're really hemorrhaging because they've got uh, tourists that aren't traveling and then they've got uh, business flights that have, uh, business consumers that have dropped off the cliff. Let's just project forward for a moment and think, you know, when we're through all of this, what are we likely to see? I really speculate that one of the things that will not recover ever is the level of business travel. And the reason why I say that is because I think there will be a lot of people that will now be going into things such as we're doing now, which is kind of collaboration via these type of things. And suddenly we're going to be re-educating the whole workforce around the world in one big effort. And suddenly people are going to say, hey, you know, it's not so bad, you know, versus the benefits of jet lag, delayed flights not to mention the carbon issues and the costs that have been associated with it. So I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if what we see is a kind of 
longer term reduction in business travel because we're re-educating ourselves about how effective it can be doing just what we're doing. So that may be one of the unintended benefits of the experience that we're going through at the moment. So that's going to be quite interesting to see um, how that plays out. You just mentioned the unintended benefits. Yeah. Uh, you know, good leaders can spot opportunities within a crisis. Yeah. Uh, so I think we talked about the being in the eye of the storm. Yeah. Would you recommend leaders take, if possible, some sort of step back for a second and to look at what these unintended benefits could potentially be? Yeah, listen, I, I, I think the will be, so look, I mean, again, the, the there were companies before coronavirus hit that were having problems in terms of their business model. And don't be surprised if many of them use coronavirus as an opportunity to hide a lot more bad news than necessarily they wanted to present. So let, let's just imagine some of that is going on. I think the really brave and audacious people are gonna be those that can take a step back for a moment and just figure out, firstly, what does the world look like once we're through this? And by the way, when we say through this, this may be something that takes two or three years to unwind. So, you know, I think this, this level of uh, discomfort and um, disruption that we're all experiencing at the moment, I think certainly for the time being, we should accept is going to be the status quo for the foreseeable future. So let, let's just kind of think about, so how we organize and build ourselves around a, a resilient operating model that can navigate this disruption. Um, and I say that because I'm sure that in a lot of corporate HQs at the moment, we've got the HR folks, got the supply chain people working day in, day out. Let's just pause for the moment and just understand is it because we think we're going to be through this in two or three months? If so, fine. If we're not going to be through this for the next 12 months, let's pause for a sec because we're going to burn those folks out when we're going to need them to run a marathon rather than a sprint. So I think there's a big leadership question there that everybody needs to ask themselves. And then I think that the third thing is, you know, through the power of people's business models, you know, what, what's going to change? You know, what are the... The opportunities there. I think one of the things that um, I think, as I said, you know, for example, you know, procurement, you know, one of the obvious things that we look for is what, where are those opportunities to save money? It may be that this is a, a, an opportunity for a corporation to really ask itself, where does it invest and where does it spend? Um, and it might be one of these kind of once in a lifetime opportunities for a lot of corporations to reset how they treat their capital expenditure how they treat their operating expenditure. So, so in that degree, it's a bit like a bushfire. It could be quite a refreshing opportunity to kind of right-size everything in the business. I, I say that guardedly because what I'm indicating is, you know, that's an opportunity to sack half the workforce and, you know, that, that would be a little bit Machiavellian and that's not what I'm trying to suggest. But even so, I think it's an opportunity to just reset where you invest, where you spend. And then, you know, what are the new services or opportunities out there that uh, lend themselves to the type of different market that we might have in the future? Well, I guess, like you said, talk about looking at different types of business practices, looking, uh, you know, an opportunity perhaps to look inside, look inwards, assess what has been working. You know, we, we were talking beforehand about, uh, before we started rolling, about cracks starting to appear within supply chains before coronavirus yeah. yeah what do you think of that well listen i mean I, I i think they were there look i mean the number of businesses i mean again think of 
some of the, um, I mean, a good modern slavery, for example. I mean, again, you know, many, many uncomfortable examples in the UK last year of immigrants being brought in and, and in a desperation to secure work, found themselves in a situation that ultimately led to their death. Um, for, for, for businesses, I think, you know, um, really understanding who's in your supply chain, where the labor is coming from, whether that labor is being treated in a, in a way that is decent, you know, let's not talk about the brand values of your company, let's just talk about the, the basic- Human value. decency, yeah. Human decency, yeah, thanks. You know, were we all comfortable that our supply chains were doing the right thing? I mean, again, and, and, and because of that, uh, I think that lends itself to a whole world of supply chain mapping um, and, and digital control towers and things like that. So again, uh, much like I described the risk and the vulnerability of the supply chain, I think, you know, some of those things that people were already beginning to acknowledge they needed to invest in more will merely accelerate and, and so we should. So, you know, we may come out of this with a lot more clarity about our supply chains, a lot more control um, and, and a lot more governance and making sure we're doing the right thing, not just by the tier one, but the tier two and the tier three, tier three uh, contributors to that supply chain as well. Some sort of looking at the ethics of uh, of your you know tier one, tier two, tier three supply chains as well. Yeah, I mean it's too easy to you know when you're at corporate HQ, it's too easy to give the kind of nod of approval when you're talking to the tier one suppliers. But you know there's a lot of ugly stuff that goes on right at the bottom. I think that certainly the big corporations have got to start taking much more ownership on um, just to to make sure that. Um, the right things are being done. But let's let's go back to something you talked about, uh, which is not here, but that you've talked about before, is cognitive diversity. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that, that's a really interesting topic because, um, you know, what, what we've seen uh, over the course of the past several years is a kind of accelerating trend towards diversity, gender, uh, racial, you know, all kinds of diversity. Yeah. yeah. And by the, by the way, I am certainly not saying that war has been won far from it. I mean, you know, uh, unfortunately my professional body, the CIPS, you know, they've got uh, an industry award body going on, uh, this year, uh, two thirds of the judges are all male, you know, in, in a, in an organization that professes to want to treat that issue seriously. So, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that battle is won. And I think all of us have an absolute responsibility to make sure that uh, we continue to, to, to make that a pressing priority. However, I do ponder that um, beyond that, I do see a lot of organizations running recruitment processes, running AI, having um, talent search teams, recruiting to a type. Uh, of, of thinking, of behavior, of language, etc. And I, I do wonder whether, uh, if you think of where the really, really kind of business breakthrough people have come from historically, they have been people that have really looked at problems in a very different way than maybe the status quo. Look at Steve Jobs, it's an example many people cite. Would, would an IBM or a, a Xerox or a Kodak ever have recruited 
uh, Steve Jobs character. No, uh, probably not. Not. Um, look what, what's happened to several of those companies. They haven't been able to innovate or reinvent. Um, and I would speculate that part of that problem, not the, not the only reason, but part of that problem comes from the fact that successful corporations build uh, a mode or operandi of operating that gets so entwined into the organization, it becomes very diff difficult to kind of acknowledge bringing on board people that might see the world through a completely different lens. And as a consequence of that, I think corporations suffer. Well, you know, I would add to this that it's not just about driving innovation with uh, diverse backgrounds. You know, people of diversity bring something different to the table, hence the term diversity, right? You're not going to get the exact same responses from everybody. I would add that diversity will also drive critical thinking yeah. uh, during crisis. So yeah. at a time like this, it's also a good opportunity. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I mean, the, the, the good example I springs to mind is the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, and, um, you know, you had the, the, the Soviets on one side and the Americans on the other, all with their kind of groupthink going on. Um, and, you know, by the grace of God, go all of us, that we that a catastrophic war was avoided. I mean, I think there's so many examples of where a, a critical, uh, d diverse point of view is needed at, at critical junctures just to kind of get people to pause and, and take stock. Um, and, you know, I think we've got to encourage more of that. And, and I think it's also about maturity of leadership because I've worked with those type of people before where you find them very difficult to manage. But you, to some degree, you've got, that's part of the, the, the leadership challenge is how you respond and acknowledge those people's diversity and use it to help you drive and, and make good decisions. And, and I think, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that we've got to do more of rather than less of. And I, I do wonder, it, it is a, I might sound like I'm pontificating a little bit, but Apple did a fabulous piece of analysis where they looked at um, the 10 top grossing films last year versus the 10 top grossing films 20 years ago. Nine of the 10 films last year were sequels to previous franchises. 20 years ago, it was only one. And their point is that we're li living in a world where we're becoming very homogenized around common things. And uh, their, their point of view is that's hampering our creativity. And we need to take a step back for the moment and just really think about whether we are really investing in creativity. Uh, going forward so that's really what spun my uh point of view on um divergent thinking i think it's it's important to not just address this at the corporate level but also at the educational level you know in terms of getting diversity of opinions yeah uh, and what do you think of that well i mean i came from pearson and um you know i found it fascinating that unfortunately we seem to live in a world these days where kids college and, and, and school qualifications center around STEM, mm -hmm. but humanities gets heavily discounted. Mm -hmm. I think that's really unfortunate. You know, I recall that Steve Jobs did not have, did not consider himself an engineer. He considered himself a humanities person that mm -hmm. had a real understanding of how technology could benefit people's lives. 
um, James Dyson, the um, uh, inventor, the inventor that's gone on and done uh, the vacuum cleaners that many people were known for, but has done other things as well, is not an engineer by training. He, uh, he studied humanities, but was inventive. And I think that those type of personalities are really interesting. You know, they have a real thirst for the humanities, but they have a real understanding of how they can use technology to advance their ideas and things like that. And um, yeah, I, I, I do ponder sometimes, I think we discount the value of humanities a bit too easily. I think in previous, in previous podcasts, we've discussed the uh, uh, recruitment practices of other businesses and recruiting to a type and the need for uh, looking at different building teams yeah. from different areas of the business, from different businesses, people from different backgrounds. Do you think now more than ever, that's something that is uh, very important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I think that takes a lot of courage on the part of the leader as well. Um, because of course it, it's, it's fail safe, isn't it? If you recruit people with a long uh, track record of industry experience uh, that have a full list of uh, qualifications but in fact I think we've got to begin to start recruiting people to attributes and behaviors because I think a lot of skills can be taught um, I don't think behaviors are so innate in us you either have them or you don't so I, I as I think of my new role uh, I'm really going to have to think about how I can craft a sorting organization that can respond to multiple challenges within Kantar but then can some really bring some ideas and some innovation and whether that comes from tried and trusted procurement folks whether that comes from people out of the industry or whether that comes from um, people from uh, from within the business but from different functions um, we'll see and I'm going to really look forward to figuring that out so I can build a really world-class capability. So we've talked about the opportunities at the moment, you know, in terms of assessing everything. This is a time to start to assess the current business models, to look for opportunities, to build strong teams for diverse thinking. Let's talk about something else, gathering data, yeah. information. Yeah. Uh, now, data has been a conversation that's been front of mind for a lot of people. There, we've talked about data-driven leadership. We've talked about, uh, you know, uh, using AI for gathering data and using it and planning and so forth. What's your take on on the data situation at the moment? Well, confusing, bewildering, complex, or all of those things. I, I think, um, you know, we started going back ten years. We started with big data. Um, and then we saw the emergence of AI. Um, and I think even AI needs clarity uh, because, you know, some people think it's a, a box of tricks that is going to have the answers for us. In truth, it's really a set of algorithms that you need to program. Um, and uh, as we're finding, you know, we, we, we talked about diversity a few moments ago. Already, uh, we're finding problems with how some of the AI is being programmed, which <laughs> has gender bias already built into it. I mean, one of the funny things I was listening to, um, funny things, I mean, um, is for example, Siri um, and Alexa are all female voices. Um, and and uh, I was listening to an article on Radio 4 saying, kind of, yeah, reinforces the fact that women are there to assist mm. rather than to lead. So, you know, I, I really think we've got to be much broader 
um, in terms of how we think about data first and foremost. The second thing I'll say about data is that I think that the advent of all of this cloud infrastructure that's being created is making us really lazy in terms of how we treat and curate data. We are storing a lot of crap that will never be used again, that for the sake of good governance and good cleanup, we should just delete rather than just pollute all of this infrastructure that's being built around the world. And then the third thing is that I think as tempting as it is to want to collect as much data about the customer as possible, let's just ask ourselves, first and foremost, what is it we're going to do with it? You know, can you actually draw out uh, patterns and um, insights that let us build products and services that customers want? Or are we going to pollute their lives with endless rounds of social media contact, email contact, voicemail contact, bothering with things that they don't want. So I think that there are a whole uh, load of issues that we need to uh, ask ourselves about. What's the intent of this data? And, and it can't be to somehow strengthen our commercial proposition. I think we've got to start asking ourselves, what is it that we can do to make people's lives better? And I would like to see a lot more of that first before the, the, the latter, which is I think a lot of people are using it to craft um, data. Um, for commercial purposes and then as you and I were talking I think the other thing about the world of data right now is trying to understand what's accurate data versus what is ill-informed or, or, or uh, false data um, and again a couple of examples it, it, it bewilders me how people infer correlations from data where it doesn't exist um, and you hear that all the time I mean you hear it now with the virus situation that we're going in that one statistic extrapolates to that and the science of being able to do that has been completely devalued through the course of uh, social media so I'm, I'm really concerned about that I think we've got to really begin to start understanding causal data um, and what that's telling us rather than inferring from different data points something that may in fact not be true so I think you know lots of things there well, there's, you know, there's an overabundance of data, yeah. you know, cir circulating the world at the moment. And I think we're probably uh, death by paralysis to some degree with, yeah. with all of this data. Yeah. Uh, so let, let's go back to the environment that we live in right now with a great deal of risk. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better anytime soon. Yeah. So how does a, a professional, a leader in this space navigate this kind of risk in, in that is just, you know, I almost think back, by the way, I'm going to interrupt my own question to say this. I was watching, I saw some meme or something the other day that said, do you remember how it was December 31st, how we all thought 2020 was going to be such an amazing year, <laughs> you know, and, and we couldn't wait to 2020 and take me back to 2019. So it feels as though 2019 or December 2019 was another world away. Wasn't it a completely different world? So yeah. now that we're in this world, Okay, yeah. we're in this world and the supply chain, procurement, manufacturing, leaders of today. Yeah. What does the profession look like moving forward? What, in, uh, over the course of the next several months? Yeah, several months, several years. Yeah, well, I, I think in, in the short term, it's going to be about survival. So I think everybody has got, in the way that we talked a little bit about uh, 
using it as an opportunity to get very focused on the cost base. I think everybody needs to get super focused on the objectives that are going to make the difference in the next 12 months. And, and, and for sure, there will be a lot out there of kind of very visionary things that people wanted to do um, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think you've got to put that to one side pretty quickly and get, so you don't burn out the organization, um, get very focused on the immediate practicalities of what you need to do to secure the survival of the business and navigate over the course of the next several months. And as you think about uh, the survival of the business, don't just think of it in terms of the P&L and the balance sheet, think of it in terms of the community of people that are part of that enterprise. So your employees and their families, uh, your supply base, um, your, your uh, customers, um, any, and any of the stakeholders that you touch. I think we've got a real obligation to make sure that we try and manage that as well as possible. Morrison's, I think, have been the shining light that I've seen so far because they've shortened the payment cycles for some mm. of the smaller independent um, vendors. I think they need a lot more kudos for that, and I'd like to see more corporations doing that. Um, as I've said, you know, I think um, the kind of medium term, once we're through this, and, and we will get through it, um, I have no doubt, I think is resetting the level of risk that we've accepted in the supply chains historically. I do see um, a big opportunity to completely, completely rethink what we're prepared to accept um, and how we appraise financial risk. Because I suspect that historically, we never foresaw anything like the scale of this ever happening. Um, is this a once in a in a uh, hundred year event? I don't know. My, my, my sense is that in the highly connected world that we're living in, you know, we could face a couple more of these every decade. And uh, I think therefore that fundamentally makes you reframe how you want to manage your risk going forward. Um, so, so I think they're the two issues that I'd be leaning on um, as I think about it. Okay, so we talked about the opportunities, you know, the uh, unintended benefits. We talked about the possibility of looking at new business models, the impact that this could have on the environment, how companies need to look inward now and reassess things. All those are great things and great bits of advice. What are the dangers? What are the, the negatives that could potentially come out of this if things are not done well? Well, I mean, there's so many, there's, Donald Rumsfeld used to say the unknown unknowns, didn't he? I think that was the phrase that he was famous for. Uh, that There is so much risk out there, I think, that um, I, I think one of the dangers is that you, you lose focus or momentum in your business activities by trying to over, over imagine where this could all lead to, which is why I think that uh, you've got to be careful that you're thinking about the future but you're keeping a very steady focus on what's ahead of you um, at this point in time. So um, that's why I think, um, I think the, the, the next several months is going to feel more like a marathon than the sprint, which is why I said, let's just take the time to protect our workforce because I'm sure many people are burning midnight hours at the moment, but I suspect we're going to demand of them a lot over the next several months. So, you know, in a world where things are going to be very, very unclear for the foreseeable future, I think the most important thing we've got to do is protect them and give them some clarity in terms of the day-to-day. -day. In terms of what's ahead of us, I mean, everybody's still got their business plans. You know, I, I was listening to the uh, Bank of England governor this morning on Radio 4, and he reminded us that uh, this was not an economic event. 
but it's now become an economic event. So the point he was making is that the overall characteristic of demand was there. And, and if you think that quantitative easing 10 years ago was designed because there was no economic demand, um, the quantitative easing that uh, governments are going to have to deploy now is about sustaining us as individuals. So it's going to be subtly different. Um, so that, that's the focus I think that um, we're going to have to bring. And I think, I think in my um, humble opinion, supply chain professionals are kind of used to adaptability and used to change, albeit perhaps not at this scale. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that uh, more so than other organ, I, departments, more so than other leaders within an organization, that supply chain procurement people perhaps are uh, in a unique position? Well, I'm going to say that because I've based my whole career on it. So uh, absolutely. I, I've often thought that, you know, it's always bewildered me why more people coming out of college and university don't think about a career in supply chain, because I think you're at the center of gravity in any business. You see everything. You see sales, marketing, customer services and finance, um, your, your, your suppliers, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's one of those unique things where you see everything. And because you see everything, it makes you, by inclination, very adaptive because you have to respond to those stakeholders within your business whilst at the same time trying to navigate something that meets the kind of financial parameters that the organisation sets for itself. So, yes, I mean, by, by inclination, I think uh, most supply chain folks are very adaptable. Um, and, and again, you know, through the lens of all of the digital transformation that we've seen over the course of the, the past several years, I think, you know, it, it, we, we can witness how successful supply chain people have been uh, adopting to the new status quo. You know, look at the amount of uh, e-commerce trade we do online these days. It still needs a supply chain behind it to satisfy and fulfill customer demand. And it's been quite remarkable how successful that has been. Um, if we weren't talking about coronavirus, I would tell you that I think one of the things that I think supply chains professionals have lagged a little bit from my point of view is the sustainability agenda. So, um, you know, we talk a lot about um, uh, recycling. Um, I think that's the wrong phrase. We've got to start thinking about more reuse. So, you know, the, cir the circular economy. Economy, yeah, I, I still think that that you know most people uh, are looking at how do they reduce waste. No bad thing with that. How do they reuse the waste that gets created? Again, nothing wrong with that. But I think you know I still think we're not really making the progress in the circular economy that um, I, I would have expected. Having said that, I attended a conference last week that Procurious ran. And uh, there was a gentleman there from, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm allowed to mention the, name, the company's name, but it's a fruit juice company that's owned by Coca-Cola. So I'm sure folk can figure that out. And they've built an absolutely amazing manufacturing facility in the Netherlands. That, that It's just extraordinary what they've been able to, well, they're building it, I should say, what they're designed for is really extraordinary. So, yeah, I think there's lots of evidence of people making progress, but I think, uh, generally supply chain people have got to push much harder on that. Well, you know, going back to everything that we've discussed at the moment, there is an opportunity here now to, to look at this, you know, to, to actually insert sustainability and the circular economy into the agenda, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a time now to reassess, like you talked about, this is a time to look deep into what has worked, what hasn't worked, 
and uh, those supply chains that are going to perhaps emerge successfully from this crisis are going to be those that are able to adapt to this new world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, in this in this podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. We could talk for hours about this. Parting last thing, what advice would you give to professionals in your in your position right now? Stay optimistic. Don't lose a sense of humour <laughs> in spite of things. I mean, I think being a Brit, I mean, we can always make fun out of the most desperate of uh, situations. But, um, you know, uh, try and um, keep a steady pace. As I said, I think we're in for a marathon. I don't think this is going to be a sprint. I think the effects are going to be sadly longer than, than we might foresee. So therefore, be measured in your actions um, and try and frame it over the next six to 12 to 18 months and i think that will give you a better timeline by which to navigate through and in spite of what the cfo may be throwing at you make sure you do everything right by your suppliers yeah that's a very very good bit of advice not just do things for cost reduction look at doing the right things that are supposed to be done right now thank you thank you very much Stephen. thank you uh, everyone we will see you in uh, the next episode of fin tv for now this is goodbye thank you